Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's wonderful to see you here today at the Vista. If we haven't met before, my name is Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. And if you join us for the first time, first time in a long time, first time at church, maybe in a really long time, we're just glad that you're here. And we hope that you feel loved and welcomed and wanted. That you fit right in and make yourself at home here today at the Vista. Uh, before we jump in, wanted to draw your attention to our Vista Volunteers of the Month this month. It's Rex and Andrea Fortner. They are awesome. Um, they serve in a number of different capacities. Yeah, you give them a hand. Rex is actually, Rex is running the slides right now, so he got to put up a slide of himself, which he said he was very embarrassed to do. Um, yeah, he's right there in the sound booth. His wife's our online host right now for people who are watching online on the Facebook live stream. They've served in Vista Recovery in a number of different capacities, and we just love them so much. They're an awesome couple. And just want to use it, too, as a reminder that a church, in my experience, really becomes home to you when you jump in and you start serving in some capacity. You start to take responsibility for this place where God has planted you. And so if you'd like to jump in and, and serve in some capacity, we've got a lot of different options. Just go to the vista.tv slash serve, and you can find something that fits you and your schedule. So uh, today we are in the third and final week of our very short but we hope very helpful little series called Help, Sorry, Thanks, the Three Essential Prayers. Because prayer is one of the, if not the, most important things that we Christians can do. And yet even though prayer is so incredibly basic, I know that prayer can be so incredibly difficult for so many of us. And you find prayer difficult? I, I do sometimes. And we can find it difficult for all sorts of reasons. For some of us, prayer is difficult because it's just a little, like, rationally confusing. Because why are you going to sit around and talk to God about all this stuff that sure seems like God would know? You know, like, why, why are you talking this out with him? God already knows. And then for some of us, prayer is just a little bit existentially awkward because we, we do believe in God, like, mostly, but God's also maybe just not as like real or there for you as God appears to be for some other people. And so just sitting there talking to this God who's probably there but may not be there is a weird thing. So he's like, you're talking to nobody about nothing and why would you do that? And then for some of us, prayer's just a little bit confounding because we were never taught how to pray. People thought we'd just figure it out, but like anything, prayer is something that has to be learned, and so we don't know what to say or how to say it, and the list can go on and on and on and on, and so if you find prayer difficult, right, two things. First off, you are not alone. You're not spiritually incompetent. You're not a spiritual moron. You know, it's just, it takes a little bit of learning. It takes a little bit of practice, and then second off, please receive this gift of a very simple guide for prayer that will not instantaneously make you know, your prayer life the easiest and most awesome part of your life, but rather it can gradually help your prayer life become more simple and focused and powerful. And given that prayer is this one specific spiritual discipline with this unique capacity to define the entirety of our lives, it means it can help your life writ large become more simple and focused and powerful. So far, we've covered two of those basic and essential prayers, help and sorry. And now this week, we will wrap things up fittingly, I think, given the season with that third essential prayer, which is thanks. So if you have your Bibles, please grab them. We'll be in Psalm 100 today, right towards the center of your Bible. Psalm 100, we'll read the whole thing. It's, it's very short, but very good. It's about five verses long. Okay, so Psalm 100, verses one through five. 
Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It's he who made us and not we who made ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. And his faithfulness endures to all generations. Psalm 100, short and sweet, verses 1 through 5. Now, a few years back, um, Gallup conducted this survey to try to discern how people thought about wealth, how people thought about being rich. Specifically, Gallup asked people how much money a year they would have to make in order to consider themselves rich. And so I wanna, I wanna do a Vista version of this survey this morning, okay? You might not wanna say your number out loud, but I do want you to come up with a number, right? A specific number, right, to this question. How much money would you have to make a year in order to consider yourself rich? Give you a few seconds here. How much money a year? If I made blank, then I'd be rich. Okay. So now it's it's time for me to do a little bit of mind reading. Okay. Ah, yes. There it is. Is your number for how much money a year you would have to make in order to consider yourself rich somewhere around double whatever you currently make? Sound about right? Uh-huh. That gets you? The chances are high that it is because according to this survey, the overwhelming majority of people believe that they would be rich if they just made double whatever they currently make. So if you make 25K a year, you're like, man, if I could just make 50K a year, then I'd be rich. If you make 50K a year, oh, if I could just make 100K a year, six figures, baby, then I'd be rich. If I could make 200K a year, 400K a year, 800K a year, you get how it works. So it would appear as though being rich is a moving target that always seems to be moving beyond whatever we currently make. Interesting. On a related note, there have been a lot of studies done over the years on cancer survivors. And while enduring cancer can be one of the most traumatic things that any human can ever experience, studies have found that while uh, cancer survivors do often experience post-traumatic stress, they also even more frequently experience something that they call post-traumatic growth. Now, to be more specific, cancer survivors not only experience very high levels of happiness, but they actually tend to report higher levels of happiness than people who have never had cancer. Interesting. There's something about having cancer that makes people who have had it happier than people who have never even had to go through the trauma of cancer. Abd al-Rahman III was a caliph in 10th century Spain, lived this life of gratuitous luxury and privilege, and yet reflecting on his life at around 70 years old, I want you to listen to what he said. He said, I have now reigned 50 years in victory or peace, beloved by my subjects, dreaded by my enemies, and respected by my allies. Riches and honors, power and pleasure have waited on my call, nor does any earthly blessing appear to have been wanting to my felicity. But I have diligently numbered the days of my pure and genuine happiness which have fallen to my lot, and they amount to 14. All right, let's start to connect 
some of these dots here, shall we? So it would appear as though there is some kind of connection between happiness and thankfulness, between happiness and gratitude. And I'd be willing to bet you already knew that, right, intuitively. You, you know that there's some kind of connection between them. You know that happiness and gratitude are like these twin emotions that tend to always show up together. And if you're like me, you probably tend to think that happiness is like the older twin who always shows up first and kind of brings happiness along for the ride, which is to say, if you're like me, you tend to think that happiness leads to gratitude. If you're happy, then you'll be, be grateful. And that, that sounds right when you hear it. Happiness leads to gratitude, but it's... It's almost certainly wrong because the relationship between happiness and gratitude almost certainly works the opposite way. I remember coming across this a few years ago uh, in the work of a rather unfamous Benedictine monk named Brother David Stendhal Ross. He's about 96 years old now. He'd written a little book on prayer and gratitude. He even had this TED Talk that kind of went viral, you know, and he kind of got his, his five minutes through it. And I remember him saying something in it that's one of the simplest and yet most profound things that I've ever heard. Right, here's what he said. What is the connection between happiness and gratitude? Many would say, well, when you're happy, then you're grateful. But think again. Is it really the happy people who are grateful? Well, no, because it's not happiness that makes us grateful, but gratitude that makes us happy. And this is one of those things, okay? Throw out all the studies and the stats and the stories. This is one of those things that you know is true as soon as you hear it said, isn't it? It is not happy people who are grateful. It is grateful people who are happy. Because you've all had that thing at some point in your life. You know that thing, that one thing that you just knew would make you happy forever if you got it? Now, in the Fisher household, the most recent version of this was the Infinity Gauntlet. Uh, we've been... Watching through the Avengers movies and the boys just knew that if they could get the Infinity Gauntlet, they would be happy forever, just like Thanos thought it, right? And so they got it. It was amazing. They spent a whole day snapping each other out of existence, and then it just disappeared. We've never seen it again, y'all. 24 hours of happiness, and now there's just a, I don't mean to freak anybody out, but a missing Infinity Gauntlet just floating around Central Texas somewhere. It's unbelievable. The kids... Kids do this stuff all the time, and it's easy to pick on the kids, but it's not just kids who do this stuff, right? So uh, the most recent version of this that I have seen amongst us adults is uh, this guy right here. You know what I'm talking about? We have to go there. Okay, if you don't know, y'all, this is the Stanley, uh, according to my calculation, 600-ounce water flask that a lot of people carrying around now. All the cool kids have these things. And y'all, I just have to ask you, why? Like, why would you ever need to be carrying around this much water. Do you all cross the desert on the way to work that I'm not aware of? Are people just dying of thirst in Central Texas? I mean, I gotta tell you, when somebody walks in a room with one of these things, I get uncomfortable. Because I do, if it is spilled, we'll all drown. When people walk in, I look for high land, elevation, life jacket, it's unbelievable, it is ridiculous. And don't give me this, oh, I drink more water. No, you won't, this thing is a safety hazard, okay? So this is a PSA. On behalf of everybody, you got to get rid of these things. This is my wife's, and so uh, will you keep this for me so I don't get in trouble there? Be very careful. Don't spill it, though. We'll all be dead. Um, there are many versions of this. Scientists call this, social scientists call this phenomenon that we all know so well, the hedonic treadmill. It's a good phrase, the hedonic treadmill. You get that new thing, man, that new toy, that new job, a new truck, that new 600-ounce water flask that's going to change your health forever, right? And you just know it's going to change your life, and it does change your life. 
for like five minutes, right? Life-changing for five minutes, and then you're left with that little happiness hangover. You know the happiness hangover, and so then you know what you got to do. You got you to get that happiness bump, right? You got to get another little hit of that happiness, and so you're on to the next thing, and you're always reaching for some sense of happiness, but you're never actually happy because you haven't found a settled sense of happiness because here's the deal. Happiness cannot be achieved. Happiness can only be received. You can't achieve happiness. And gratitude is how we receive happiness. Gratitude is happiness received. That brings us back to Psalm 100. Old Testament scholar James Mays has observed that if we could you know, pull up all the streaming statistics for the most played and sung song throughout Israel in the church's history, Psalm 100 would probably be near the top of the list, followed very closely by Spirit of the Lord and Oceans, but it would be right up there at the top of this. And, and you see why when you read it, man, it's this short but really powerful song that expresses gratitude and says something that I think deep down we all know that we desperately need to say. Namely, thank you. You need to say thank you. As G.K. Chesterton once really cleverly quipped, he said, hey, the worst moment for an atheist is when he's really thankful and he has no one to thank. <laughs> we need to say thank you. Now, the psalm starts off with a command. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Now, this command to shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth, which is found throughout the psalms, should be sharply juxtaposed with the command to whisper depressingly to the Lord with your arms crossed, which is not found in any of the psalms and could perhaps be a little bit instructive for some of us. I love the way Andrew Wilson puts this in his little book on worship called Spirit and Sacrament. He said, man, Christians have joy unspeakable, full of glory, but you might not always know it to look at us. Now, to be clear, man, I'm not saying you have to jump up on the communion table, do a belly dance during worship. We prefer that you're not. But I am saying that if you find shouting joyfully to the God who made you, sustains you, and redeems you awkward or weird or uncomfortable, then you might want to loosen up a little bit. You know what I mean? Because yeah. if people, thank you. If people looking at you couldn't tell if you were at Easter worship or a dadgum funeral, you might want to loosen up a little bit. All right, shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Those of you who have ears to hear, here. Next up, we're told to serve the Lord with gladness. This word serve is the Hebrew word of bod. It carries with it this idea of joyfully submitting yourself to the service of somebody, in this instance, God, in doing so, joyfully. And that, that might sound a little bit weird to your modern ears. Because you and me, you know, we've been told that we don't serve anybody, baby. So we're free. We don't serve anybody. But as the Bible and Bob Dylan have taught us, and when those two say it, it's good. Nobody gets to serve nobody. Because everybody has got to serve somebody. It's a good Bob Dylan song, got to serve Somebody, and that somebody who you were made to serve is not yourself. You're a bad master. But rather, it's the God who made you, sustains you, and redeems you. That brings us to the next thing we're told to do, verse 3. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who made us, and not we who made ourselves. This is so simple but it can be so transformative because if you will really get this and understand this, you will be transformed. 
It really is that simple, okay? Here's how it works. Uh, You did not make yourself. You cannot sustain yourself. You cannot redeem yourself. You, you do not deserve to be here. Which means you are literally incapable of being entitled to anything. There's no good reason for you to be here. And that kind of sucks, doesn't it? I don't like that very much. Right? Because aren't you entitled to some things? Aren't you entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Aren't you entitled to good health and a good education? Aren't you entitled to fair pay and fair treatment? Aren't you entitled to a lot of things? Well, here's where things get a little bit tricky because in a sense, of course you are. Because you're, you're a creature creating God's own image. And that means you are entitled to being treated with dignity and respect and equality and care and compassion by your fellow humans. Of course you are. But then on the very deepest level of your existence, no. No, no, you are not entitled to anything. Because how could you be? How could you be? Because your very existence is utterly unnecessary and completely dependent upon the generosity of God, your maker. And so to just put it as directly as I know how, you and me, y'all, we've got no leverage. We've got nothing. Because any rights that we might claim when standing before our maker, they are not rights. You don't have rights standing before your maker. They are gifts. All those things you think of as rights, they're not rights. They are gifts because you don't get rights standing before your maker and capable of being entitled to anything. We'll come back to this. And so after being invited to shout joyfully to the Lord and serve the Lord with gladness and know it is God who made us and not we who made ourselves, the psalmist gives us this little summary in verses four through five. He says, so enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness extends to all generations. So the psalmist ends by reminding us that the most appropriate response to our no leverage, utterly unentitled and completely dependent situation is not despair, nor is it resentment, but rather it's gratitude. If we have our wits about us, then we will be unspeakably grateful that our hope is rooted in something more sure and certain than our rights. We will be grateful that our hope is ultimately rooted in the goodness, kindness, and faithfulness of God. This is why one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, Walter Brueggemann, he calls Psalm 100 an act of sanity. Listen to what he says. He says, obviously our world is at the edge of insanity and we with it. Inhumanness is developed as a scientific enterprise. Greed is celebrated as economic advance. Power runs unbridled to destruction. And in a world like this one, Psalm 100 is an act of sanity whereby we regain our minds. Life is no longer self-grounded without things, but now rooted in things. Because theologically, technically speaking, 
Gratitude is sanity. And entitlement is insanity. You follow me? Entitlement is insanity. Literally, if you are walking around entitled, then you have not read our situation very accurately. (laughs) Because you have no leverage. You don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve to be here. Entitlement is insanity. It means you don't see reality for what it is. Um, Any of you familiar with uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Ringing a bell from like sixth grade sociology? Yeah, yeah. Most of us have heard of it, given that it's one of the most important anthropological observations of the last like two centuries. But as a reminder, the basic premise is that there is an order to our needs, meaning some needs are more basic and essential. And then once those needs are met, we can then graduate our way up the pyramid to having other needs met that are less essential and less basic and on and on and on it goes. Uh, for those of us who are more visual, here's a pretty standard pictorial representation. It's ringing a bell now. Uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you get it. And so our truly basic needs are the ones that are at the bottom, food, water, warmth, shelter, rest. And so then once those needs are met, we can then graduate our way up to those more psychological needs like belonging and community and love. And then once those psychological needs are met, we can then graduate our way up to those more self-fulfillment and self-actualization needs like achieving our potential and finding our calling. And there is obviously a lot of truth in Maslow's hierarchy of needs because even in the most extreme circumstances, water is more important than therapy, right? You follow? It is. One of my friends is one of our elders, Jude Austin. He's a fantastic therapist, and people come into him all the time like, oh, my life's falling apart, Jude. I'm just, I think I'm on the edge of a breakdown, man. What do I do? What prescription can you give me? He'll say, bro, you just need a nap, man. That's all you need. You need a nap. I'm gonna give you a prescription to go take a nap. And that's what most people need. That's what most people need to start with. For the medicine, just take a nap. For God's sake, take the nap. And so, There is obviously a lot of truth in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, absolutely. But it's also a little bit misleading, I think, because it leads us to believe that our needs grow fewer and fewer as we graduate our way up the pyramid. Because once you found food and water and shelter and you found some sort of belonging in a community, you know, I mean, it might be nice to fulfill your calling and your potential and find the perfect marriage, that might be nice. But if those are the unmet needs in your life, you got a pretty good life, right? Like if your need is I don't have the perfect marriage, then well, cry me a river, buddy, and get in line and join the club, okay? Because you know what happens if you got the perfect marriage? You'd just be so sad you didn't have the most perfect marriage. That's what would happen next, right? It just always seems to move, right? And so here's the deal. Of course, it should be true that our needs grow fewer and fewer as we graduate our way up the pyramid of needs. That should be true. But you and I both know that. Well, just, I know, it doesn't really work like that, does it? You and I both know that while our actual needs take the shape of a pyramid where they grow fewer and fewer, our felt needs tend to take the shape of an upside down inverted pyramid when our needs just grow greater and greater and greater and greater and greater. I think we've got a slide up here of uh, what our needs actually feel like, right? Just more and more and more and more and more and more and more needs because the simple fact is that most of us in here today, y'all, we don't really need much of anything. And I know it bothers people when I say this, but it's just, it's, it's true. We are the safest, most secure, most comfortable people 
in the history of the world. Not up for debate. Very few of us, if any of us in here, have ever involuntarily experienced hunger or thirst. You would think so with these water bottles we carry around, you know, that people are just dying left and right of thirst, but I still haven't seen it. And so you would think that we would be the most thankful people in the history of the world, wouldn't you? And yet I get the distinct impression that this is not the case. And to be clear, this is not because we're especially bad people. We're not especially bad people. But rather, it's that as we graduate our way up the pyramid of needs, our needs seem to proliferate instead of narrow because we increasingly lose the ability to distinguish our wants from our needs. And if you were to ask me, Austin, what's like the primary spiritual struggle that you see at Vista, that you see in our community, it would be this. We think and feel like we need things that we don't actually need because all of our actual needs are met. And yet instead of being grateful for that, we become entitled to it. And then we graduate to becoming resentful that all of our wants aren't being met too. Just me. That's why it's so hard for modern people to be grateful. And so if you want off this treadmill, and I know that you do, if you want off this treadmill, then stop obsessing over getting your needs met because there's no end to that. And start focusing on managing your wants. Some of us in here, we walk around every day and the primary thing on our agenda is getting your needs met. You ever noticed, has it ever worked? <laughs> you know? No, it's just more and more and more and more and instead focus on managing your wants. Or as this Spanish Catholic priest, Jose Maria Escriva once said it, he has most who needs least. Don't create needs for yourself. Because here's the deal in closing. Right? Here's the deal. Um, you cannot be grateful and entitled. They are mutually exclusive postures. You can only be one. Which is to say you cannot be happy and entitled. You can only be one. And you know which one you want to be. I know you do. But we just need some help because gratitude for all sorts of reasons, it doesn't come as naturally as entitlement does. You grow entitled to whatever is normal for you. It's just how it is for all of us. And so what the psalmist has given us here in Psalm 100 is not like an instant recipe for gratitude. There are no shortcuts in life. But rather what he's given us is more like a, it's like a, a workout regimen that'll get your heart in gratitude shape if you'll practice it. Right? Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Not whisper depressingly with your arms crossed. Serve the Lord with gladness. Know, remember that you are incapable of being entitled to anything. Find simple ways to practice gratitude. One of the simplest and yet most powerful things that you can do is start off your day every day with like a five or 10 second prayer of gratitude. Even when I don't really have any time to pray, I, that's the prayer I make time for. When I'm on the way to work, I say, God, thanks for having me again today. <laughs> you know? I, I don't deserve to be here. There's no good reason for me to be here. There's no good reason for me to be here. And yet, You've decided to have me again as a guest in your good world. God, I'm grateful to be here today. Because the single 
most appropriate thing that we can say to God, our maker, is thank you. Amen? Now, we're going to give ourselves a few moments to respond now. Uh, there are a number of ways you can respond. You can stand up and sing. We're going to sing a song that embodies gratitude, talks about gratitude. You can sit and you can pray and go receive communion. The body of Christ that was broken for you, the blood of Christ that was shed for you, this weekly family meal where we remind ourselves that you're here because of the generosity of God and no other reason. Or maybe you want to talk and pray with somebody. We've got people with orange lanyards on who will be in front of the sound booth who would love to talk or pray with you. But uh, I think Joel, is Joel back there? Joel, our community pastor, was supposed to come lead us in a prayer. So we're looking for a new community pastor. Uh, if any of you are <laughs> interested, hate to fire him three weeks in, but I will lead us in a prayer of gratitude. All right? Gracious God, thank you so much for the gift of today. We are reminded that we do not deserve to be here. It's very, very, very hard to remember because we grow entitled to whatever is normal. And so we don't know any different. And we pray that today we would have been reminded that, God, we have no leverage. Standing before you, we have no rights. Any right we could claim is just a gift. And yet we do not resent this. And we are not in despair. Rather, we are grateful that our hope is rooted in your kindness and not in us. We come before you this week and we just confess, God, all the ways in which... Man, our needs, especially as modern people, just grow out of control. So much of our mental energy, so much of our life gets spent trying to get our needs met. And it's an empty game because there is no end to the needs until we realize that everything we have been given is a gift. And all we need is Jesus. We pray that in these moments you would remind us of that as we sing about it and respond to that truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.